Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, you can imagine we're going to be discussing the resignation of Theresa May, and we'll also be digging into who is coming next as the next Prime Minister of Britain. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, and deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Well, we often say it's been a dramatic week in Westminster on this podcast, but this week probably has topped them all. We're recording this on Friday, just a couple of hours after Theresa May came out of Downing Street to announce that on the 7th of June, she will be resigning. Crucially, she's stepping down as leader of the Conservative Party, not as Prime Minister. But we know that by the end of July, we'll have a new person in Downing Street and a new person to take on the Brexit mantle. So George Parker, let's begin at the beginning of what was a pretty hectic week in Westminster. Monday was quite quiet. But on Tuesday, Theresa May delivered what was her final big act as Prime Minister, which was to deliver a somewhat misjudged speech on Brexit, which went down rather badly and after a lot of efforts finally sealed her fate. Yes, this was the bold and new and improved Brexit offer that she intended to put to the House of Commons, very much her last throw of the dice to try and get her Brexit deal through. It had some stuff in there about the customs union, which was intended to win support over from some Labour MPs, but most controversially of all, dangled the possibility of a second EU referendum in front of Labour MPs. It was discussed at Cabinet. The Cabinet reluctantly signed off a deal. And then Theresa May went down the road to the headquarters of PwC in Bankment Place to give a speech where she explained what she thought had been agreed by the Cabinet. Now, controversially, It was an undertaking by the government to legislate for a second EU referendum if that's what MPs wanted. And the Conservative Party erupted in anger. Tory MPs were furious. They said they couldn't possibly sign up to this. The members of the Cabinet said they'd been stitched up. This wasn't what they'd agreed to at all. And it was clear just in the five minutes it took me to walk back from Embankment Place back to my office in the House of Commons that the whole thing was going down in flames. Miranda Green, I was completely astounded at the backlash before Theresa May had even finished giving that speech. Members of the ERG, the Eurosceptic group of Conservative MPs, had come out and said, I'm not supporting this. And it was clearly, yes, customs union was bad, but it was the second referendum that really just set the Conservative Party alight. And it wasn't just MPs. We know it was cabinet ministers, too, were saying we can't possibly countenance this. Completely. And I agree, as George said, the speed with which all different factions actually of the Mm -hmm. Conservative Party were lining up to go on the 24-hour news channels to denounce the new offer and to say it was something they couldn't support. And once you sort of heard a couple of voices of people who had actually come on side to support the deal the last time round, saying no longer could they do so, once you'd had rejections even from the people 
for example, on the Labour benches who she was trying to pull on side, you realised she'd lost everybody and the support was ebbing away. And really, there was a very spooky feeling, I thought, by the end of Tuesday when you just thought, that's it, she's out now. And it felt very much like those of us who are long enough in the tooth to remember the last couple of days of Margaret Thatcher's premiership and when she emerged onto the steps in Paris and from that moment you knew it was just a matter of hours. So we've all been trying to work out which hour would be the one and it turned out to be Friday morning when she was forced to the podium to say, I'm leaving, that's it, enough. It's one of the things, George, we've been trying to unpick is why she gave that speech because it was so misjudged. It couldn't have actually gone down any worse. And we know Theresa May has said she was going to bring back her Brexit deal for a fourth attempt. This was a way to get through to that. But essentially Downing Street seemed to be entirely cut off from political reality. If they hadn't thought this backlash was going to be so clear and so swift, they wouldn't have delivered it. Well, I think, you know, it was a desperate situation at the start of this week. Time was running out for her. And I think probably she thought the only way she could possibly do it was to make some bold move on a second referendum. But it was a fantastically desperate act. I think Mrs May must have known as she delivered that speech, it wasn't going to work. The chief whip at the cabinet meeting on Tuesday had delivered some pretty grim warnings about the parliamentary arithmetic and how it was likely to fail. And he was ignored. And he was ignored. I mean, the relationship between the chief whip and the prime minister has broken down. I mean, it's a completely dysfunctional government. The prime minister, as you say, is cut off from political reality. And I think, you know, by the time we got to Wednesday morning, it had become absolutely clear in number 10 that it was all over for Theresa May. Um, On Wednesday, you had the spectacle of the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary trying to have a meeting with the Prime Minister to express their discontent with the proposal. She refused to meet them because she knew very well what they were going to say and that it would be leaked immediately to the media what they had said. And on Wednesday afternoon, she gave a statement to the House of Commons, which was surreal and funereal as well, in the sense that, you know, you had this Prime Minister with a huge expanse of green benches behind her. Tory MPs had failed to turn up. And the ones who did turn up were in total silence. The whole mood had changed. She came away from the House of Commons and hunkered down with her closest advisers, including, crucially, her husband, Philip May, who's her principal confidant and advisor. And at that point on Wednesday afternoon, I'm told that the Prime Minister herself, probably the last person to accept it, realised the game was up. And essentially on Wednesday and Thursday, Miranda, this was the bunker days. And I think it was summed up by Ian Duncan Smith, who said the sofa is up against the door. And it was really that she wasn't seeing anyone. She wasn't talking to MPs, wasn't even talking to the cabinet. And the point at which you're not talking to your foreign secretary and your home secretary, then really that was the point at which the jig was up. And things came to a head when it was clear that not only did cabinet ministers want her to take the second referendum out of the bill, they didn't want her to bring back the bill at all. And once that was made clear to Downing Street, there was just no point in her staying in office. That's right. And I think it's actually quite interesting the moments at which the other people in the Conservative Party realised it was no longer in their interest to try and prop the thing up any further, because clearly the Cabinet, up to a point, had had to vaguely support her through the failed votes one, two and three. When it came to vote four... If you yourself are sitting around the cabinet table, you think, you know, your prime minister is going to go any minute, you might fancy the top job yourself, or you might have some cunning plan to save your party from disaster. It's no longer in your interest Mm -hmm. to try and stay on the sinking ship. You want to find a life raft and get off it. I think also one thing that I found quite interesting was this idea of introducing, dangling the possibility of another Brexit referendum really annoyed the Scottish Tories, Mm. because partly what they've been 
been trying to do in Scotland to say, once you've had a referendum, you don't have another. And to undermine Ruth Davidson's camp in that way, in the lead up to another electoral test on Thursday, was also a really bad move. Because one person we didn't mention was David Mundell, the Scottish Secretary, who was one of the, as you said, angriest people about this, because he just made it very clear that if you're talking about a second Brexit referendum, you're talking about a second Scottish independent referendum. And that, I think, was a factor in all this too. Absolutely. And, you know, every time Mrs May now appears on one of these podia, she's now done it for the last time, she says the Conservative and Unionist Party. And that move, dangling the possibility of that second referendum, was completely undermining the Unionist Conservative cause in Scotland as they saw it. So they were furious. And George, on Wednesday and Thursday, there was still a pretty divided Downing Street because there were people in there who were saying to Mrs May you can still get through this, you can still have one last crack at delivering Brexit. And there were other people saying, it's over. Some pretty torrid scenes in there. Yeah, we heard accounts of people shouting at each other inside the bunker and some people, Robbie Gibb, the Prime Minister's communications chief, seemed to be probably the last person to actually accept the game was up. Um, There were briefings to the BBC on Thursday morning that the Prime Minister was going to publish her bill on Friday. There'd be a vote in the House of Commons in the first week of June. Yeah, within three hours, that had been abandoned completely. The whole thing had been canned. But I'm told in the end, there was a sort of a a consensual mood. And by the time it got to Thursday evening, the Prime Minister retreated to Sonning, to her constituency home in Berkshire, with her husband to sort of map out the final choreography. Came back to London on the Friday morning. And I'm told that when she went back in through the famous black door, she was obviously distraught. There were people clapping her back into the building. Interesting, a very marked contrast to the insouciant way that David Cameron went back into number 10. For instance, I mean, humming or whistling a jaunty tune. I thought that was a really vivid contrast. David Cameron, who left the country and the Conservative Party in this mess with his Brexit referendum, and the Prime Minister, who spent three years trying to clear up the mess and ultimately failed going back into number 10 in tears, whereas David Cameron had gone back in humming a tune. I thought that was a really stark contrast. Yes, one number 10 advisor texted me to say the mood was fragile and frantic this morning, which I think sums up Mm. where it was at. So we're now on to Friday, Miranda, when we know that Mrs May was going to see Graham Brady this morning and it was expected he would say to her, do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? And we had this slightly ridiculous spectacle of the 1922 committee, this is the backbench Conservative Party's ruling body, that they had written letters about changing the rules to allow a leadership challenge. That would have been incredibly fraught, incredibly messy. And so Graham Brady was really saying to the Prime Minister do you want to try and remove you or will you just go? And as George just said, they clearly decided the game was up. At 10am on Friday, all of the advisors were gathered for a very emotional meeting where people were very upset. And then Theresa May came out and gave a statement. What did you make of the statement? I tended to sort of sympathise with her pitch, actually. Clearly, you can say that she has made a succession of appalling strategic errors in trying to, as she would put it, deliver Brexit. We can discuss those, but I thought that her self-justification wasn't that ill-judged, actually, in trying to make a big deal of reminding whoever succeeds her as Prime Minister that you have to find a way through this very difficult situation. And she stressed the idea of compromise Mm. My own feeling is that if she'd actually governed in that spirit, we wouldn't be where we are today. And if from the time that she became prime minister, instead of deciding to 
crush the saboteurs, tell anyone who voted Remain in the referendum that they were a citizen of nowhere, actually go with the polarising trend in politics. If she had governed in the spirit of compromises necessary, we may actually have been coming to a relatively peaceful resolution of the stage one of the Brexit story. Instead, as George says, she's been reduced to tears. Really, the country's been reduced to tears. (laughs) And it's very debatable whether the incoming Prime Minister will find it as easy as some of them seem to think to resolve this irresolvable problem. Mm. I thought that glint of steel towards people like Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab, which we'll talk about later, was quite significant there when she was saying, you're going to have to compromise because Mrs May knows that whoever comes next is going to be a more hardline Brexiter who will take a tough approach mm. um, to this, to trying to unravel this thing, because lest we forget the clock is still ticking. Yes, and she said that um, compromise is not a dirty word. And as Miranda said, that was quite a brutal challenge to the people who are going to come after her. She also, incidentally, made reference to the fact that she claimed to have governed from the centre ground and described compassionate centre ground conservatism. And so that was an indication that where she thinks the party should be going, not down an ideological hard Brexit route. I think she actually used the word moderate, didn't she? Which she I did. Which was quite a red rag to a bull for some. Yeah, but as Miranda rightly says, I mean, the idea that this is going to be easily solved is for the birds. And Miranda and I, unfortunately, have been around long enough to have covered the resignation of John Major, David Cameron, Theresa May, all brought down on the subjects of Europe. And frankly, the situation for the Conservative Party and the country is now more agonising than it was for either of Theresa May's predecessors. I mean, the party is in a state of nervous exhaustion. Exactly. And I just want to reflect very briefly on Mrs May's career, Miranda, that she's been Prime Minister for three years and she's really not going to be remembered for anything because she had one job, which was to deliver Brexit, and she has no legacy on that. And she said that in her speech, it will be a great regret, I never delivered Brexit. And it's hard to see how she will go down. I don't think history will think particularly kindly of her. Yes, she tried. Yes, she tried to bring her warring party together, but she will be just remembered for giving in to the inevitable, which was the Conservative Party is becoming the hard Brexit party. Well, she wasn't guilty of some of the things that her predecessor was. I would say that if you compared the culpably casual attitude of David Cameron to holding the Brexit referendum and accidentally losing it to Mrs May's determination and sort of resolute attitude to just pursuing some sort of compromise, it was the wrong compromise. She did it the wrong way. She had no sign of any of the political skills that you need to reach out to people who you need to support you when you're running a minority government. She should never have called that general election in 2017. She should never have done the deal with the DUP. The list of her mistakes is long. I think it came from a genuine, sincere place of trying to deliver Brexit, which she thought was the priority. I think it's really sad, actually, because when she became Prime Minister, you can say that we were all naive, but some people looked at her and said, well, at least she seems like a grown-up, at least she seems like a sort of sober individual after we've suffered from the casual approach of David Cameron. She made a very good speech on the steps of Number 10 when she became Prime Minister, diagnosing some of the underlying problems of this country, the burning injustices, a theme she returned to on Friday as she stepped down. The problem is she didn't actually do anything about it, and that's because government has been utterly paralysed by the Brexit mess. So she failed on her own terms on Brexit and on her underlying diagnosis of what's wrong with British society. 
I would just say, Miranda, I do actually disagree on the election point that I think she did have to call that election because she had no functioning majority. She couldn't see any way of getting Brexit through. I think the issue was how she fought that election and how she tried to do this ridiculous manifesto of trying to do a thousand and one things, didn't talk about Brexit awful campaigner, awful debater and ultimately I think that was what did for her and the fact that she was never chosen by the Conservative Party membership meant she always had this legitimacy problem. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair point. At the time it didn't look a mad decision did it because the Conservative Party had just won a series of local election results handsomely. It was 20 points ahead in the polls. 20 points ahead of the polls. They just won a parliamentary by-election in Cumbria against the Labour <laughs> opposition. So, you know, on the face of it it wasn't a totally stupid thing to do, but as you say, it was disastrously executed and her domestic legacy is negligible and will probably merit a page in the political obituaries that are written about her. But see, I'm not sure. I mean, I agree, Amanda, her speech on the steps of Downing Street in 2016 was memorable and she did identify a lot of the symptoms that had led to the Brexit referendum. I'm not sure whether she really had the political enthusiasm to actually deliver on that agenda. I know that she was told that it was the right thing to do by her advisor, particularly Nick Timothy, as a way of reaching out to the North but was she ever really, as a dyed-in-the-wool Conservative Prime Minister, ever willing to do the difficult stuff that you'd have to do to address that domestic agenda? Was she prepared to allow houses to be built on the green belt, for example? Probably so not. Was she prepared to change the tax system to the advantage of worse-off people compared to those who are better off? Probably not. So the fact that Brexit came along is a convenient excuse <laughs> for the fact that she didn't have a domestic agenda. But as you said at the start, Seb, she had one job. I think one thing she will actually be remembered for, Miranda, is a series of speeches that if you look at all the things she said, there's been very crucial soundbites that stick in your memory that define me. Obviously, her 2016 conference speech where she talked about citizens of nowhere was seen as a bit of a fingers up at Remainers and people who take a more global attitude. Governors of the Bank of England. Yes, indeed. <laughs> there's obviously Brexit means Brexit, the tautology that has defined her. There was no deal is better than a bad deal. So all these things that she said tried to capture something, but it was really an issue of the emperor's new clothes here. There was nothing thing behind it. Well, I think it was worse than that in some of the examples that you've mentioned. I mean, no deal is better than a bad deal. Tripped off the tongue several times a day for months and months and months and it became a trap for her because, of course, it's not true at all. And then she had to try and argue the very opposite to her convenient soundbite. Brexit means Brexit, yes. There's also nothing has changed. You know, that was the point in the general election when it was going really badly for them in 2017. And when she was confronted with various problems, just insisted that there was no way in which the campaign was going down when it was visibly tanking. I take your point on calling the election, just to return to our little moment of rare disagreement there, Seb. But I think that you don't have to call an election when you inherit the prime ministership. And I think looking at that 2017 precedent, whoever comes next might be very, very, very reluctant to make the same mistake. Now that the May era is over, the Conservative Party turns to who it wants to have as its next leader and next Prime Minister. We've got a rough outline of the timetable. Mrs May will resign on Friday, June the 7th as Conservative Party leader and MPs will begin voting the week of the 10th of June to select the final two candidates that will go forward to the party's membership. The Brexit clock is ticking and this is going to be a fast contest. The party has announced it will all be done and dusted before summer recess at the end of of July. So, George Parker, 
We now know how the contest exactly is going to be held. These MPs will do rounds of voting. We don't quite know exactly how when that's going to happen. But we can expect people to start declaring pretty soon, in fact, because although Mrs May will want to focus on the state visit of President Donald Trump the week after next, and we've got the European elections, really the contest will begin this Sunday. Uh, yes, I think there's watch out for the Sunday papers. And I just imagine also in the Saturday papers as well. I mean, imagine there'll be a few hours for a decent period of grieving for the Prime Minister's departure, but probably that's about it. And then we will see the full range of talents that are going to be put on display for the Conservative Party leadership. I think we're nudging up towards 20 people who now fancy their chances. And of course, you have to aim off a bit because some of those people are declaring their candidacy in the hope that they will pick up a few supporters and then throw their weight in behind someone who will offer them a tantalising job. But as Robert and I well remember, this is a very unpredictable process. People are committing their support to multiple candidates. The same names will appear on lots of different candidates' lists. It's an unpredictable contest. But as we know, and I'm sure we're about to come on to discuss, the clear front runner is uh, one Boris Johnson. Yes, Robert Shrimsley, all the talk in Westminster has been much like the summer of 2016, that the former Foreign Secretary and prominent Brexiter is the favourite in this contest, which is a very dangerous place to be at this stage. The person who's at the front traditionally doesn't win Conservative Party leadership contests, but it does feel like it is Boris's to lose at this point because he ticks the box of being charismatic. He's got the argument, I don't know if it's true or not, that he's the only one who can beat Nigel Farage's Brexit party and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour party um, and he is a committed Brexiter and that really feels as if it is going to be the crucial quantity in this contest because Brexit is not resolved and that is going to be the first challenge for the new Prime Minister. I think that's absolutely right. I did suppress a giggle when you said people are going to be declaring over the next few days. I expect many of the candidates to have declared sometime last year, in fact. <laughs> this leadership election has been running for quite a long time already, Behind albeit, the albeit in a shadow basis. Obviously, Boris is the front runner, and that has historically been a problem for the Conservative Party. That doesn't mean it will be this time. Every other rule of political governance in this country appears to have gone out the window in the last couple of years. So who knows? It is, by the way, worth reflecting that the people who will choose the next prime minister, about 70 or 80,000 of them, essentially the population of Peterborough will choose the next prime minister. That's how small an electorate the Conservative Party is. Slightly less diverse population than the one of Peterborough. uh, Rather less diverse. I think that's a fair point. (laughs) But yes, of course, absolutely all about Brexit, which is why some of the Theresa May loyalists were so desperate for her to get her deal through before this contest happened, so that some of them would be in a better position for the next stage. I think that it's almost inconceivable that someone who didn't support Brexit at the very beginning wins this. I know there are people like Jeremy Hunt and Sajid Javid who've become born-again leavers since the vote. My instinct is that the Conservative Party is not going to want to trust itself to anybody who isn't pure on Brexit. And pure, by the way, is a moving feast because you've got people like Michael Gove, whose Brexit credentials are impeccable, but who have sullied themselves by supporting a deal and some form of compromise. So I think it is going to be very problematic for anybody who doesn't have strong Brexit credentials. And that's the interesting dilemma for Boris, by the way, because he will want to portray himself not as some sort of head-banging Farageist, but as someone who can bring the party together, get some kind of reasonable compromise. He wants the votes of the One Nation group of Tory moderates. So he's got to sound moderate to them, but if he sounds too moderate, he'll get outflanked by other hard Brexiters like Dominic Robb. So he's in difficult space and just 
to answer your final point about beating Farage, I think the key point here is you've got to take Farage out of the game altogether. If the Brexit party stands at the next election, then the Conservative Party is already done for, I think. So you've actually got to give the Farages no reasons to be there. So, George Parker, what do you make of Boris Johnson's chances at this stage? Because, as you said, he's obviously got a lot of MPs on board. I think even this week, his diary has been full of 15 to 20 minute sessions where they come into his office. Boris nods and sounds very serious, says, oh, yes, we've got to get Brexit delivered. Yes, we've got to beat Nigel Farage. And some have come away convinced that he is more serious about this than he was last time. Others think that it's exactly the same and the flaws he had before are the same flaws he has now. Yes, I don't think he could be any less serious than he was last time. You were saying there, Seb, that he's pitching himself as the only person who can beat Farage and the only person who can beat Corbyn. And of course, the other theory is, is the only person who can beat Boris, Boris Johnson himself. There was a strange sort of air around the Boris campaign in 2016, the fact that the prize was there to be grasped and he just didn't seem to have the will at the very last moment to actually go for it. Famously playing cricket the night before he was making this decisive speech in the campaign. So there's something a bit odd about the way that Boris has approached the leadership. But as you say, it seems to be more professional this time. He's got the advice of Lyndon Crosby on a daily basis, not officially retained at the moment. He's got former Tory MP called James Wharton running these meet and greet sessions with him. Grant Shapps, the former Tory chairman, is working with him. Gavin Williamson, of course, another great numbers person throwing his weight behind him. So there's a serious operation behind Boris. I agree with Robert. It's almost certain to be a Brexiteer, a proper Brexiteer who wins the crown. And the other thing, of course, almost as important as being a pure Brexiteer, is the question about whether the candidate is going to help me save my seat because by the time the Tories come to choose their next leader, the Conservative Party will be on its knees facing the prospects of electoral annihilation. They'll have the chance to digest the European election results by then. The Peterborough by-election coming up on June the 6th, which will be another bloodbath for the Conservatives. And lots of them seem to think that Boris Johnson, despite the fact he's a very divisive character now, much more divisive than he was when he was Mayor of London, is still the person that's most likely to be able to help them save their seats. Do you think there's any chance, Robert, that Boris will not get through to the final two candidates? Because there are a lot of MPs, the Scottish Tories, notably some of them who are running what is called Operation Arse. We will let our listeners decide why it might be called that, to stop Boris getting onto the ballot paper because they feel that if they do that, then it will be someone else and that they won't have to face the issues that do come with Boris. Because we shouldn't forget that he is a divisive figure, that Tories love him, Brexiters love him, but a lot of Remainers in the country really do do dislike him. Yeah, although we shouldn't also forget it's only Conservatives who are going to be voting in this contest. Of course it can't be taken for granted that he makes it to the final two. It's just that he starts off in a very strong position. He could fumble some way in the next few weeks, although I don't think he will. He could just not have quite as much momentum as people are ascribing to him, which means when we get to the first ballot and his numbers come through and they're not quite as strong as people think, he seems to be going backwards rather than forwards. Mm. I'm not saying I think that will happen, but I've seen it happen before in other contests. But he is going to set the running. He's going to be the yardstick for everyone else to measure themselves against. I think his biggest danger is actually trying to appear all things to all sides. I think if he sticks to the position he's had for the last year or so, which is being fairly tough on Brexit, I think he will be all right and make it through. He does have the charisma. He does have that extra factor which makes people pay attention to him. The country is polarised and you're going to have to be on a side, as the European elections are going to show. The middle ground, the compromise ground, is being horrendously squeezed. People are taking positions on Brexit. He's taken a position. I think if he tries to imply to the moderates and the remainers in the Conservative Party they can trust him to do some kind of deal, he'll be outflanked. I think he's better off just sticking to his guns at this stage. Mm. 
And George, let's look at some of the other candidates. So there's really, as well as Boris, there's about four very serious ones who have proper campaign teams. So I, just one thing. I do think, by the way, the mere fact that we refer to one of the candidates by their first name just shows how huge a figure they are. You have to be an enormous public figure before you're referred to in that way. And that's the scale of the advantage he has. Absolutely. So, George, let's look at some of the other main candidates who are likely to become the next Prime Minister. I would probably reckon, although it's a tight thing to say, that the main competition petition for Boris comes from Dominic Raab, the former Brexit secretary, who's a slightly more hardline Brexiter than Boris. He's probably more likely to push for a no-deal Brexit if the Brexit deal Mrs May negotiated can't be fixed in some way. And he appeals to Conservatives who really want to get a clean break with the EU. But I do wonder how he will go down with the country outside the Conservative Party. He's not really known outside of Westminster at all and does come across as a bit of a Cold fish to some people. He certainly doesn't have any of the charisma of Boris Johnson. As you say, he's not very well known. And if you're a Conservative MP sitting in a marginal seat in the Midlands, of, let's say with a majority of 5,000, and you're wondering who's going to help you hold on to that majority, I don't think the obvious answer is going to be Dominic Raab. And actually, instructively, there was a survey, I think by Labour list, of the Tory Prime Minister the Labour Party would fear most. And Boris Johnson was off the scale as the person that the Labour Party... 45%. Exactly. And the others were nowhere at all. I think that tells you a lot about the calculation that the Tory MPs will be making. And the thing for Mr Raab, Robert, is that he's actually not a total hardline Brexiter because he did vote for Theresa May's deal on the third reading. He said he wouldn't have voted if it had come back for fourth. And so that hardcore group of Conservative MPs, which is 30 to 50 in the ERG, who are dead set against any kind of Brexit compromise and anyone who voted for that compromise won't be backing Dominic Raab. They might be looking to one of their own. So there's talk about Steve Baker, the deputy chair of the ERG running, and Priti Patel as well, the former International Trade Secretary, who again has been steadfastly against Mrs May's deal. Well, I mean, even Robespierre ended up on the guillotine. You know, the revolution continually consumes its own. If they want to go down that path, then the people who are more moderate will thank them for splitting the Brexit vote. I don't expect that in the end to be a major problem. They might have a punch in the early rounds. I think one of the most interesting and telling questions, actually there are two, one is someone we haven't been paying much attention to just coming through because they want a new broom. That's always possible. The other question for me is what the May loyalists, the Remain-minded Conservatives, the people we think of as being attached to the One Nation group that Nicky Morgan and Amber Rudd formed, that have been reformed recently, what they choose to do. And they've got a very big decision because they can either choose to get behind one of their own, like Matt Hancock or Rory Stewart, someone who's absolutely been in that wing of the party and try to push them and just make themselves a force in that election. Or, and I've had people from the One Nation group making both arguments, or they could say, look, we know it's going to go to somebody who was a leaver, but we need to get the right kind of leaver. We need to get a sane, moderate, someone who was with us and saw the need for compromise. And the name that crops up for those people is Michael Gove. And they say, we need to get somebody who gets that we have to get a compromise through and we should throw away behind them. So they've got a very interesting judgment to make because the other thing I think that's going to come out of the European elections is that the Conservative vote is obviously going to be absolutely catastrophic, the worst they've ever recorded in any election, quite probably in single figures. And there are two ways to interpret it. There is the Farage interpretation, which is this is going to be a big vote for a no-deal Brexit. And there's the other interpretation, which is the Conservative Party has just been punished for not delivering Brexit. And so they've got to say to their own members, look, it's all very well to have a flamboyant leader or someone who's very, very pure, but what you actually have to do is look competent and deliver 
the Brexit that people have voted for. So I think that argument could have some resonance. And that's another one of the risks, I think, for mm. a front runner. I think Michael Gove is someone who has been picking up momentum, George. Mm. I think he's, in my view, the Remainers Brexiter. So if you're someone like Tom yeah. Tuckenhart, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, who came out as a Michael Gove backer this week, you acknowledge the need to have a Brexiter leading the government. But Michael Gove, you know, he is a very thoughtful, intelligent Conservative. He's a good communicator. Whether he could win a general election is a different question. But he seems to be doing quite well, whereas Jeremy Hunt, another one of the main contenders, no one seems to know particularly what his platform is. They're MPs I've spoken mm. to have had these dinners with Jeremy Hunt where he tries to make his case keep coming back and saying, well, it would just be like more of the same that we had with Theresa. I think that's the problem with Jeremy Hunt. I think you make a good point about Michael Gove. He made decisive interventions in the cabinet against a no-deal exit, and that won him a lot of support amongst the Remain fraternity in the Conservative Party. I think the problem that Michael Gove has is that people will look at his approval ratings among the electorate, and he still has massive baggage going back to his days as Education Secretary, hugely unpopular. And I've spoken to one One Nation senior Tory with a marginal seat saying, would Michael Gove actually help me hang on? No, is the answer to that. So that's his problem. Jeremy Hunt's problem, as you say, is that he has these meetings. He gave an address at the press gallery lunch, which is often seen as a bit of an audition for wannabe um, leaders and so on. And it was good, but it wasn't memorable. And that's the thing with Jeremy Hunt, is that he consistently gives performances, including at private dinners, which are sort of given a B rating by people who've been there, but he never actually hits the heights. And the thing about Boris Johnson, going back to him again, is that whatever else you think about him, he has the capacity through the power of his oratory to put a smile back on the face of a party which looks beaten and destroyed. Basically, I think if you take a step back from the specifics of this and look at the big picture of British politics at the moment, what we can see is a country that has voted persistently for wanting change. It's not happy with the way things are. There are two vehicles for change. One of them is Brexit and one of them is Jeremy Corbyn. So... I think the only viable strategy for the Conservative Party is to make that change look more attractive than the other change. George is exactly right. What Boris Johnson is able to do is say to the voters, look, you were right to vote for Brexit. This is going to be great. There'll be the old bump. We'll manage it. I'm going to make this work. And I think the only way that the Conservatives have a viable chance at the next election is to take a side, campaign for it with confidence and with aggression and hope they can make it work. One of the point about the Johnson versus Hunt scenario, let's say they make it onto the final two, is that all the time that Robert and I have been covering politics, there's been a seesaw between interesting, charismatic prime ministers and boring, technocratic prime ministers. You, know, you went from Thatcher to boring Major to interesting Blair to boring, competent Brown, what we thought at the time at least, to slightly more interesting David Cameron, back to boring Theresa May. So given that rule, we are now looking to interesting, dangerous Prime Minister rather than more of the same with Theresa May. And just the last of the main candidates as well is Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, mm. who again has been doing lots of organising, lots of running, and he's going to run on a platform, as we've talked about before, of... I can rebuild that 2015 coalition, bring back ethnic minority voters, bring back some younger voters. He's got a very strong backstory. He's spent tens of thousands of pounds on speech training to make him sound better and more competent. And his team seem to think that he does have a good shot. What do you rate his chances, Robert? I always worry when I hear that someone's got a very good backstory because it often means they haven't actually got a very good front story, <laughs> that they haven't got that much to say about themselves in their capacity as a politician. He has got an interesting backstory. I'm not convinced he's got enough to cut through. I'm slightly more interested in some of the outlying candidates, the Penny Mordaunts, the Matt Hancocks. 
the people who we're not paying a lot of attention to. One of the things you have to remember about this ballot is if as many people stand as we think are certainly are indicating they're going to stand, then it will not take many votes to get a decent showing. You get 20, 25 votes, you're going to clear it through the early rounds and all of a sudden people go, oh, so-and-so's done quite well and they begin to attract a bit of attention. So I think the people to be looking for are the ones who we've not focused on so much but who suddenly pop up as having a bit more support than we expected. Yes, and that's the second layer of all these people who've talked about running. And you mentioned, I think, two very interesting ones who could be the ones that have the potential to rise through. Penny Mordaunt, who's now the Defence Secretary and was a big face of the Vote Leave campaign. And also Matt Hancock's the Health Secretary, who's going to run on a platform of trying to be a fresh face, a new generation. Then the list just goes on from there, George, with Esther McVeigh, the former Work and Pension Secretary. She's running. We mentioned Steve Baker from the ERG. He's running. It's going to be such a big contest. It's very hard to know what happens. But as soon as the new PM is in, which is going to be before the end of July, soon it's going to come back to Brexit. And we shouldn't forget about all this Westminster drama. Brexit is not changing. And the most stark words of today once again came from the Deputy Prime Minister of Ireland, Simon Coveney, saying the withdrawal agreement is not changing. The deal is the deal. And whoever comes into Downing Street is going to have to face that same question. Do you pass the deal Mrs May failed three, almost four times to pass? Or do you go for a no-deal Brexit? And will Parliament let you do that? Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, the new Prime Minister is going to face the same problems as Theresa May. And I think it might be even worse problems than Theresa May because it's not just that people can't agree on a deal. People are actually really not just bored by this subject, but they're actually exhausted. Their mental energy that is spent on this subject. And the idea that the new Prime Minister comes in, there's a bit of a buzz of excitement, and then gets back into the same old discussions about backstops, negotiations in Brussels, which don't go anywhere, no deal discussions... I think in the end, inevitably, this takes you to the point that we are going to have to have a democratic event, as they like to call it in Brussels, either a referendum or an election to clear the air. I agree with George. I think that the deadlock remains, all of the issues remain. A new prime minister is going to get tarnished very, very quickly. They're going to have almost no honeymoon at all. I'm interested to see whether Parliament would actually force the hand of a prime minister who was determined to go for a no-deal Brexit. And the only way you could really stop Prime Minister doing that is with a vote of no confidence. The question is whether a new Prime Minister is prepared to risk a general election. It's almost certainly online to be the shortest serving Prime Minister in history. Canning, I think, got four months and he died, which is a legitimate excuse, one might feel. <laughs> so I think a democratic event is very possible. I've always thought a second referendum with no deal on the ballot paper is one of the real possibilities. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you want to read more about Theresa May's departure, the impending leadership contest or any FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me and produced by Anna Dedder from our new studio for the first time at Bracken House. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.